Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine tailored to the specific and intimate needs of the discerning film nerd. Throughout the COVID era, I've been trying to help my fellow nerds through lockdown, ease of lockdown, rule changes, possible second lockdowns, and the various upheavals to the film industry we all love. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, there's a number of ways you can reach out. I'm on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to my profile. There's also an Instagram for the podcast with the same title as my Twitter handle and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. As ever, the podcast has a kind of monthly film magazine format. It includes a number of different features for you to dig into and enjoy and keep you company on your exercise, car journeys, or even your train to work if you're one of the few who's doing that again. And as ever, the podcast is split into two halves, or two reels if you will, allowing you to take an intermission between healthy portions of nerdy film content. There's a bit of a horror theme in the episode with Halloween around the corner, so several of the films I'm discussing are horror movies or chillers of that description. I'd like to apologise in advance for the fact that uh, some of the features I recorded this month I had a cold, so my voice doesn't quite have its usual smooth quality. I hope you get through it. I also have a quick announcement about the podcast. While Double Reel has established its format and style, there's always room for change and improvement. This month's podcast will be similar to the last few episodes, although perhaps with a slightly looser and more informal style. But next month we'll see a bit of a relaunch. It will still be the same features you've hopefully come to know and love, but presented differently. Keep an eye on the socials for more information on that in the coming weeks. Here's what's coming up in episode 6. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd, some film-related news and what I watched this month, including going back to the cinema to see Tenet again. Then I take a look at my watch list of classic and worthy films that I've been meaning to make time for instead of endless reruns on ITV4. This month it's the classic German submarine epic, Das Boot Extended Edition. Then the special guest interview with my son James Adamson. This time the Adamsons will be discussing Martin Scorsese vs Marvel. My hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is the underrated and lesser-known supernatural thriller, Stir of Echoes. And in the one that got away, I cover an intriguing story about a film that never got made and that I wish we'd got the chance to see. This month, it's the visionary Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness. To finish, we have a remake Hate Watch, which for this episode is the practically indescribable Nicolas Cage version of The Wicker Man. But first, some messengers from listeners, a.k.a. the podcast magazine letters page. Scott934 says, I'm looking forward to the next episode. I've got strange days lined up on the strength of your recommendation. I watched Queen and Slim as well recently. Um, I had high hopes for this, but found it quite dull and following a predictable path. But I like Daniel Kaluuya. Also watched 12 Years a Slave. Absolutely harrowing, but brilliant. My other half and I agreed that we loved it, but wouldn't be watching it again. Yeah, I echo that. Although I do keep watching 12 Years a Slave and I keep going back to it myself. Gandhi Floss wrote in, I'm enjoying the podcast, although my film tastes more mainstream, so I've enjoyed listening to you discuss things in passing like Terminator and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm looking into some of your recommendations for your less commercial and mainstream films, and I will get round to them. Well, thank you, Gandhi Floss. I always appreciate hearing from a new listener. Riff Raff has contacted me again, reminding me of his recommendation to do a piece on Elmore Leonard adaptations. Yes, sorry, I haven't got round to that. I'll have a look at doing it as a special feature. Englishman Abroad wrote in, Again, saying I enjoyed the podcast, looking forward to the next one. I would say, though, that by saying the name of De Niro's character in your recent piece on Angel Heart, you sort of gave away the plot. 
Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, you do have to be very careful about spoilers these days, and sometimes a detail in film can be more than you think it is. Quite a few people have uh, got in touch and recommended Saint Maud is worth a watch, which is a new horror film out in time for Halloween. COVID restrictions permitting, I'll try and get to see it, but I'll put it out there for listeners as the Halloween horror recommendation for this month. Look Out Piano, I love these usernames by the way, Look Out Piano gets in touch on the socials. I mentioned recently needing to watch uh, Casino again, giving some people prefer it to Goodfellas, and Look Out Piano has watched it again recently saying, it's one of the only films I went to see twice in the cinema and it's brilliant, beautifully shot with great performances by De Niro and especially Sharon Stone. Yeah, I really do need to get around to seeing it now, but people are, uh, the momentum is building of people talking about this film, so maybe I'll add it to my classics list. Thanks for all your messages, now on with the show. First up, here's a roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd. There's been obviously some news about the film industry recently, none of it very good. Uh, the new Bond film No Time to Die has been delayed back to uh, April and that's been a little bit controversial. People wish they'd shown a bit more guts like the makers of Tenet did and helped out the cinemas. As a direct reaction to that, uh, Cineworld and a couple of other people have uh, closed all their cinemas until further notice and other, and other ones might follow, which isn't great. Uh, I recently read something in the news that... Um, Government funding to support cinemas that are in a spot of bother has been a little bit unfair. Secret Cinema by itself has had a million pounds of funding, which might well see it through, but every other cinema in the UK has to make do with £650,000 between them, and that doesn't seem like a fair bit of funding for a, an industry that we think adds a lot of value in this country and has a lot of jobs riding on it. Um, we're going to have to wait and see what the longer term impact of all this is on the cinema compared to streaming and so on. I hope people still want to get out there and watch films when all this is over. Um, like a lot of people, I've got local cinemas that I want to show some love and support to. And uh, this month I'm shouting out the Everyman Cinema in Barnet. And I hope you guys are all doing well and I hope to be out there uh, watching a film with you soon. Um, the other bit of news that came out, it's something else about Chadwick Boseman who's been... Um, in our thoughts a lot recently, um, Sienna Miller um, mentioned in an interview that Chadwick Boseman gave some of his salary away to her um, to give her fair pay on uh, the film 21 Bridges because she was uh, having a hard time getting paid what she thought she was worth by the makers of the film, which is a, it's a pretty classy move by Chadwick Boseman, sticking up for other people like that. So um, just one more reason why we're all sorry to have lost him. In terms of films watched this month, um, it's actually been a bit of a slow month for me watching films. I haven't seemed to find the time to watch as many as uh, as I'd like, as I've done in previous months. I think I, I was off sick with a with a, a, a cold for a couple of days. It wasn't that bad, but you know, and uh, just took a little time to recover. I've been sort of catching up on TV shows. All weak excuses, but you know, I am trying to watch more films. Uh, so what I did see on on television, I watched Deadpool. I mean, I've seen this a million times. I enjoyed it as always. Always great comedic flair with a sick twist that Ryan Reynolds is perfect for. Um, I'm still a little bit disappointed that the female lead in the film is basically just a girlfriend role, when as I understand it, that character had powers and her own mission and stories in the original comics. Maybe they can put that right if there's another Deadpool film, uh, Deadpool 3 or whatever we're up to. Um, also watched Five Bloods on Netflix. Uh, my son James recommended this to me as well. I'd be hoping to see it. It's Spike Lee's uh, Vietnam movie, basically, and it's a really interesting take on the Vietnam War. Most of it is set in the modern day, although we see uh, the, the original war in flashbacks. Um, the start of the film plays on the viewer knowing all the other Vietnam films and using some of the music, and there's a scene where they go up the river in a boat, which is reminiscent of Apocalypse Now. Um, 
The other thing that was really interesting about the film is that in the flashbacks, they just used the same older actors who were like 50 years older now in the flashbacks. And it was it was actually really interesting. It worked for me because it, it made it seem like the um, the characters were reliving their experiences or remembering themselves and seeing themselves as they are now. And it made it quite poignant to see Chadwick Boseman's character, who who hasn't aged, because without giving anything away, his character died in the war. And the, the story, that doesn't spoil the plot at all, because you find out later in the course of the film how he died and what that means to the story. Um, it added a, a modern day uh, sort of plot uh, for the for the Vietnam veterans, black guys going back uh, to Vietnam with some unfinished business of various types. Um, also because it's Spike Lee, he had basically showed some uncomfortable truths about the war, not least that the, uh, although the black population was only 11% of America at the time, uh, black soldiers made up 32% of the American army in Vietnam, and various other things like that. Um, I was also reminded in this film, my dad said something years ago that's always stuck with me, um, most Vietnam films, or Hollywood Vietnam films, are about what Vietnam did to America, not what America did to Vietnam, and I think Spike included that this i mean he was talking about what uh, america did to vietnam as well as what vietnam did to america and you know with the aftermath of the war being really clear even when you come back 50 years later in many ways it's classic spike lee because although his films are often very varied and versatile they're always quite distinctive with the way he makes his films this one was a bit wild and uneven but i, I did really enjoy it and there's some great music in it as well some marvin Gaye that you should watch out for um i watched 12 years a slave on the telly as well um a lot of these films are like that, like 12 Years a Slave, and others are on, on TV for Black History Month, so there's quite a few good films like that out at the moment. And I found myself watching it again, even though I've seen it quite a few times before. I mean, once again, it's an utterly brilliant film. I've discussed it a fair bit on the podcast. Uh, not just such a powerful story about slavery, but an amazing piece of filmmaking by uh, Steve McQueen, who really is, and I'm not kidding this, he is up there with Stanley Kubrick for his command of cinema and really watch out for the next film he makes. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Um... I tried to watch Warcraft on TV for about the fifth time, and for about the fifth time I gave up um, quite early on in the film. Um, I like Duncan Jones, the director, and I'm not averse to a film based on a video game, I'm really not. Just every time I try and watch Warcraft, I find myself losing the will to live after about half an hour. I ask myself, for all these characters, what's going on, and, and I just give up before I get hooked on the story. The problem is, is that, as, as I understand it, World of Warcraft is basically a game in which millions of people make their own adventures. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to try and turn it into a film with just one story. I think a lot of video game adaptations have this problem on film. And I think other, other films have been successful when they've looked at video games in sort of a, a more conceptual or kind of uh, being about video games. Like Ready Player One was quite successful in doing that. And there's a couple of books I've read that I think would make good stories that are about video games or could be a video game. One is... Bedlam by Christopher Bookmeyer, and another one is uh, Reemdy by uh, Neil Stevenson. So th there is a great um, uh, adaptation of video games to film out there, just this isn't it. Uh, what else did I see? I saw Murder on the Orient Express on the TV. This is the updated one directed by Kenneth Branagh, with Branagh himself as uh, uh, Hercule Poirot. Um, it's a big all-star cast, uh, including Johnny Depp, who must have been disappointed that he wasn't the one in the film with the uh, outrageous hair and stupid accent, which is normally what he brings to a film. Um, I thought this was a good version of the story. I mean, it's quite familiar. It, it, it doesn't do a lot different to the 1974 version with Albert Finney. But it's good fun, well-staged, great, great cast, and really good stuff with the train in the snow. Basically, classic all-star Agatha Christie adaptation, really good sort of Sunday, Sunday evening viewing. Um, also watch Queen of Cataway, which is another Black History Month film. It's uh, about the true story of a Ugandan girl who turns out to be uh, like a you know 
possible chess master and um, how she rises from very humble beginnings to make that. I really enjoyed this film. It's a proper underdog story, uh, like something like Cool Runnings or in Invincible, the Mark Wahlberg film, even if the settings and style are very different. It's just irresistible to see someone coming from you know, such humble or, or unpromising beginnings to actually make it in that kind of way against all the odds. Um, just a, a quick uh, quick mention, in real life, the girl uh, who was the chess master, she's doing quite well and actually making a living at chess, which is really good to hear. But very sadly, the girl who played her in the film died um, earlier this year, age 15, of a brain tumour, which is absolutely terrible news. And it, that was, a, you know, she was a young actress with a whole life ahead of her, and I was terribly sorry to hear that. Um, also saw K-19, The Widowmaker. I streamed this because I was just in the mood for another submarine film, about which more later. Um, this is Catherine Bigelow's version of a, the true story of uh, a Russian ballistic missile submarine which was about to hot up the Cold War and had real problems uh, on its maiden voyage with its reactor going tits up and real you know, risk of, uh, of World War III if, if it blew up near the American shoreline. It stars Liam Neeson and uh, Harrison Ford and a bunch of other actors you'd recognise. It's a good film. It's really solid. It's a good. Uh, it's a good example of a submarine drama. Um, it's not Bigelow's best, but I really enjoyed it. And it gets really powerful when they start running into trouble with the nuclear reactor and the way they have to deal with that, and the story of the the sacrifice of the people under the water there, who pretty much had, you know, the whole world's fate in their hands. Um, this film inspired me to do one of my impromptu top ten. So here's top ten submarine movies. Um, I normally say in no particular order, but uh, there is one order to this. Das Boot is the one I'm mentioning first, the German submarine drama, which I'm mentioning later in the podcast. That is the greatest submarine movie of all time. The other nine on the uh, list, they are in no particular order, and they are Crimson Tide, Tony Scott's uh, 1990s classic, The Enemy Below, Run Silent, Run Deep, Morning Departure, The Hunt for Red October, The Bedford Incident, Destination Tokyo, We Dive at Dawn, and Above Us the Waves. All of those are highly recommended if you fancy a submarine movie, especially Crimson Tide and Das Boot, but they're all very good. Um, the Abyss was disqualified from this list because it doesn't predominantly take place on a military-grade Navy submarine. Uh, likewise, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, although that's a really good movie. Uh, U571 was disqualified from this list because it's utter horseshit, and it stars John Bon Jovi. Finally, I had a look at uh, Tenet again. I went to the cinema to see this a second time. I was very keen to do this. I think a second viewing was needed. Um, it's been debated on the podcast before whether a film that needs a second viewing has done its job properly, but I went to see it. I, I really wanted to do this again. And because the, one of the key things in the film of Tenet is a temporal pincer movement, the idea that people go forward through time and, and uh, take part in or witness a scene and then come back to it um, from the future and only by doing both do you resolve things. I felt like I was carrying out my own temporal pincer movement here to watch it again and see how my my uh, response to the film was a second time. Um, I went into the local Odeon. The Cineworld IMAX that I went to see at the first time is sadly shut so I wasn't watching it on the biggest screen. When I went in it looked like I was going to be the only person in the screening although three or four people turned up just before the start. Um, I noticed there were trailers for June and Bond in the film, which is a bit, you know, annoyed me slightly because they're not showing soon and half the cinemas are shut because they couldn't uh, show the guts to uh, to turn up and show their film. But we had trailers for them. God knows when we'll see those films. Um, so what did I think when I watched it a second time? Well, the audio was clearer this time, and I don't know whether that's because this cinema had a better sound mix or because I wasn't trying to take in as much information for the first time as I was in my previous viewing and I was just picking up more, but I did hear more this time. Overall, absolutely loved it. The second viewing worked. I realised there's, uh, there's a breadcrumb trail through the film 
that explains the story and it makes you understand the motivations and, and the feelings of the central character, John David Washington, and the other key characters, Neil and Kat. Um, I know some people haven't taken to this film as much as others, but I think Nolan is actually genuinely pushing new boundaries here. This is like his 2001, where you know some people might be left cold by it, but there is a genuine genius at work here. The sound is always going to be controversial. Uh, it doesn't have as much an emotional impact as Inception or Interstellar. Uh, and he still has a bit of a, a problem with female characters sometimes, which this film doesn't solve. But Nolan is taking films to a level almost no one else is doing, and he's trying really, really out there things with $200 million blockbusters. So I'm really pleased that he's out there doing this, and I, I really love this film. I couldn't get enough of it. I'll, I'll maybe, if I can, go and watch it again in the cinema before it goes away. Now for the feature where each month I turn to my list of recommended classic and more worthy films to watch instead of just flicking over to the Bond film on ITV4. I'm not sure if you're the same, but I always have an ever-growing list of films I feel I should get round to, but often put off until another time. This can create a mental block when you realise how long it's been since you promised yourself to watch it, or think you need the right frame of mind and perfect conditions to watch a classic film. Thanks to this feature I've started breaking through that and getting round to items on my list, because I'd look a bit of a twat if I came in to record the podcast and I had to admit I hadn't watched the film. Turns out you don't need to create ideal watching conditions, you just need to bloody watch the thing. I hope by doing this I help you motivate yourselves to watch more films on your own watch list and backlog. So far the films I've watched on this feature are Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love, Les Diabolique, Let the Right One In and David Cronenberg's Crash. The rest of my list looks like this. Das Boot Extended Version, Wages of Fear, Korean Zombie Film Train to Busan, Hell or High Water, the Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, the Oscar-winning Japanese film Departures, CSA, The Confederate States of America, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, and the new edition Casino. This is the Martin Scorsese classic, which I have seen before, but after several listener recommendations, I mentioned that maybe I need to watch it again and re-evaluate it compared to Goodfellas, so on it goes. I'm trying to keep track of the recommendations coming in from you, the audience, and I do have more films on my shelf and watch list to throw on there in future as well. This month I decided to tackle a big one. Big one in several respects. It's one of the longest films on the list, one that I've been meaning to watch for the longest, and one that creates all sorts of mental blocks for me. Not only do I need to get around to watching it, I'm struggling with how to pronounce the title of the film and where to file it in my alphabetically organised DVD shelves. This month's classic is the extended version of the submarine epic Das Boot. Now, do you pronounce it Das Boot, Das Boat, Das Bert? Do I file it under D for Das or B for Boot Boat Bert? This genuinely preoccupies me, and I know that's sad. In the spirit of cutting through the crap for this feature, time to resolve all of this once and for all. Pronounce it Das Boot, with a slight German accent to add authority. Das means the, so I'm going to file it under B for boat. But before I file it back on the shelves, time to take it out, put it on the DVD player next to the big telly, and watch the bloody thing. You will all likely be familiar with the film, and a lot of you will have seen it. It's a classic submarine story, so it includes all the usual key moments, such as trying to avoid depth charges and tense silent scenes as a cramped crew inside the sub wait to hear if the enemy above them has detected them. What sets it apart is the level of detail you get about the submarine crew over the three hours plus running time, and the fact that the submarine crew is on a German U-boat, so essentially the enemy, the bad guys so far as the Second World War is concerned. Das Boot was originally a novel by Lothar Gunther Buchheim, a fictionalised story closely based on his own experiences as a war correspondent in World War II, assigned to go on a U-boat mission and observe and report on what he saw. 
It's written and directed by Wolfgang Peterson in 1981, a German director who had mostly done television prior to this. The great success of this film propelled him over to Hollywood and English language films such as The Neverending Story, In the Line of Fire, Outbreak and Air Force One. The captain of the submarine is played by Jürgen Prochnow, who went on to make a number of Hollywood films as well, most famously as the villain in Beverly Hills Cop 2. The film was a big hit in Germany on release in 1981, then got an international release in 1982, where it was hugely successful as well. It got six Oscar nominations, including Best Director for Peterson, and is widely regarded as one of the greatest war films ever made. All of which has me mentally kicking myself for taking so long to get around to watching this extended version. It of course exists in several versions, I've seen the short theatrical one, it was expanded into a six-hour miniseries in the mid-80s, and then the era of DVD and Blu-ray has been released in several extended film versions. This one is three and a half hours and is described as the director's cut. So, sitting down to watch this film finally, the first thing you realise is how realistic it is. Right from the beginning, it's just a vivid and brings the entire world to life. You get insights into the lives of the sailors who on the night before their big uh, voyage go and get absolutely blasted drunk in a brothel the night before sailing. Then when they get in the submarine, you realise just how cramped the conditions are in the U-boat, which was much smaller than the modern submarines you see today. So there's nothing like the different compartments, settings and offices, dining tables in their own room that you get in something like Crimson Tide, the 1995 classic. And this is what really brings home that you're li living in a completely different world because it's just a long tube where everyone has to run through everyone else just to get from one side to the other. You see all the meat hanging up and other food all over the boat at the start of the voyage, people sharing bunks uh, when they're not on shift, how they're all clean shaven at the start of the mission but get hairier and scruffier as they go on. The, the mission itself under the water, it, it's basically long periods of boredom and uh, where they feel very gloomy about the state of the war and unbearable tension starts to kick in when they realise they're near uh, enemy ships and they have to decide whether to attack or whether they're going to be attacked if they go near them. It was also very interesting to see an Enigma code machine on board, the navigation and communication officer receiving messages and decoding them. Uh, and I would have thought the makers of the film would not be aware in 1981 that the British had cracked that code. So when you hear the story in the, in the film of how the, uh, the Allies seem to be winning the war in the Atlantic and they seem to know where they are every turn and have depth charges waiting for them wherever they go, you actually know more than the, uh, than the crew do about why that is. Overall, the film is brilliantly made. I mean, there's incredible craftsmanship involved in making the film. No CGI. It's all very cleverly done out at sea and in water tanks. Uh, and every scene is completely believable. Um, watching the film, you get a weird feeling because you're essentially watching German central characters under you know Nazi rule try to sink British ships, which is a really strange feeling. Um, but no nonetheless, you know, you you've realised these are human beings. None of them really, apart from one, are particularly Nazi and essentially they're just trying to survive and the tension really ratchets up as they you know they're sent on what is essentially a suicide mission and you wonder if they're going to get out of it alive and there's a brilliant evocation of the fact that the longer this goes on the more likely it is that they'll find themselves in one more battle or skirmish that they don't get away from of course the strangest feeling of all is that watching these young men and identifying with their fear and tension um they're the enemy and, and of course, the German filmmakers and the 1980s West German audience wouldn't have seen them as a good guys either. So that's kind of a universal feeling of ambivalence you get watching the film. I think the best thing about the film is, is the detail. You can honestly see the sweat on their brow, the fact that there's a, an outbreak of a sexually transmitted disease because they're all sharing uh, bunks and one person catches crabs, so everyone on the boat catches crabs. The 
the the action scenes are brilliantly done and they they wouldn't have had unlimited resources they certainly didn't have great special effects but the the just the sign of the water uh being filled with like explosion and light and then the uh, submarine shaking and being filled with water. These things are kind of cliches now, but this film just does it so perfectly, and you're really on the edge of your seat. Uh, and the the three-hour running time just flies by as you watch them go through the mission and find yourself really... You certainly don't want them to win. You certainly don't want them to catch any more Allied ships, but these are just young men, and you want them to survive, and you want them to get through the war, and really realise the sheer toll that this takes when people are worried about their loved ones at home, cracking under the strain wondering if they're going to get out of it alive. So, of course, it should be no surprise when this is clearly one of the best war films ever made and probably the best submarine film ever made that I'm recommending this. And uh, again, I apologise to, to you, the audience, and the film world and the universe generally for taking so long to watch this Blu-ray that's been sitting pristine on my shelf for all this time. Um, if you haven't seen it, I absolutely thoroughly recommend it. it it's a really brilliant evocation of... Uh, life under the sea in a submarine mission and certainly the best account of submarine life I've seen must be quite true to life because it's based on the experience of someone who, who was really there uh, and the the sheer brilliance of the making of the film can't help but impress you but also the drama of the story um, so I'm glad that I've met, watched this film for sure I'm glad that I've knocked, knocked this off the list and if you haven't seen it or are waiting to uh, to see something else on your watch list I hope this inspires you to do the same And now for the special guest conversation feature of the podcast where my son, also called James Adamson, joins me for some nerdy film chat. If you've tuned in before, you'll be aware that we share a name and a love of film, but we don't share an accent. Each month we pick a topic to discuss, ranging from big issues torn from the headlines of the day to subjects we just fancied having a chat about. This month we're not being 100% topical because it relates to a big news story from about a year ago, but it does raise some issues about the state of the film industry today. We're looking at the controversy that arose from Martin Scorsese's comments that Marvel films are not cinema, where his thoughts are coming from, and whether it's fair to say that about Marvel. The first part of the conversation will close out reel one of the episode, and the concluding part will open up the second reel. So without further preamble, let's get into the chat. Hello and welcome to the Double Reel Film Podcast Big Conversation between James Adamson and James Adamson. As always, I bring my son in, also called James, to talk about a topic we decided was interesting and worthy of a bit of time to share with our listeners as part of the podcast. So welcome aboard, James. Yeah, great to be here again. Um, we've got an interesting topic today. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Yeah, this is quite a contemporary topic in a lot of ways. It stems from some uh, discussions that happened, I, I guess, towards the end of last year, in yeah. which Martin Scorsese called out Marvel films as saying that they're, they're not really cinema. Um, he was very critical of the fact that Marvel is so dominant of the, of the, uh, the film industry at the moment and drew a distinction between the kind of films he makes and the kind of films that seems to get made these days, which generated quite a lot of discussion. And um, at a time when we wonder what sort of future there is for film, what kind of films, you know, are going to get made in future. I think it's interesting to look at this, um, you know, issue that was raised by, you know, one of the giants of cinema. Um, so James, as, as I tend to do, because you're, um, you're quite strong on building on the preparation for these topics, I'm going to throw it over to you and ask you to introduce this topic. Where did this all come from, uh, Mark Scorsese calling out um, Marvel? Okay, so, yeah. Well, I'm on his um, New York Times article now, because I don't want to misquote him or anything, so I thought that would be the best way to go from. I've got notes as well. But 
Um, basically, he put an opinion in the New York Times in November 2000, November the 4th, 2019 is when this was published in the New York Times. And it, it's basically responding to his quote about um, Marvel, because um, he was asked a question about Marvel movies, and he basically just said he wasn't a big fan of them. But he was in England in October 2019, and he just says, I've tried to watch a few of them, and that they're not for me, that they seem to be... They seem to me to be closer to theme parts than they are to movies, as I've known and loved them throughout my life. And that, in the end, I don't think they're cinema. Um, so the reason he's said this is that cinema exists. Basically, he's trying to say some people have seized, seem to have seized on the last part of my answer as insulting or as evidence or as evidence of hatred for Marvel on my part. If anyone's intent on characterizing my words in that light, there's nothing I can do to stand in the way. Um, and he doesn't really address that point further on but the point he's making is that he grew up with the classic directors of you know your hitchcock he, he waxes lyrically about what, what he what was the phrase whacked lyrical about um alfred hitchcock you know the you know it was an event going to see all his films and um basically his reasoning is that his marvel films are totally different to the stuff he likes to watch so things like uh film like the steel helmet by sam fuller persona by ingmar bergman it's always for weather by Gene Kelly. It's, he's just he's just talking about different art for for art films he sees in the art form, um, but yeah, he, his reasoning is is that he feels like Marvel films don't have any risk. Nothing's on the line, which I thought was a bit of a strange comment. Um, but yeah, he just doesn't see them as like the traditional contemporary cinema. You know, what I mean, you know, you know, the classic cinema of you know films that are made, I suppose, in a different formula to. Yeah. Marvel films, and I feel like that—that's his problem with it. It's that Marvel films tend to follow a formula and are a bit samey. Um, but I—I I don't know where I properly sit on this. Um, I don't know about you. Yeah. So um, there's lots to unpack here. Um, I might as well get my obligatory Mark Kermode reference in early. Um, and on the Mark Kermode uh, BBC Radio 5 film programme, there was an interview with Chadwick Boseman um, because he had uh, the late lamented Chadwick Boseman, I should say, because um, he had a film out, um, uh, 21 Bridges, towards the end of last year, and they had him on and they thought they'd ask the question, uh, given that he uh, was playing Black Panther as well and was obviously a mainstay of Marvel and asked him what he thought. He gave a very thoughtful response, which, which is not to say he's had the final word on it, but I thought it was very interesting that his response revolved around partly saying, well, you can't ignore what Martin Scorsese says because he's a cinematic genius. He's one of the greats of the art form. So if he's got a concern, you've got to listen. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. Um, he, did, he did point out that, you know, not in a, not in a bitchy way. I don't know if you've ever heard any interviews with Chadwick Boseman. He's very kind of, he was always very, I'm still getting used to talk about him in the past tense. He was always very um, balanced and... Yeah, and in, in layman's terms, he was sound. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he said that, you know, bear in mind that Martin Scorsese's got a film out at the moment. And he wasn't saying it to be bitched to say that Scott's, Martin Scorsese was being um, uh, controversial for the sake of it. But it is a fair point that Martin Scorsese is kind of, you know, you know on, on the campaign trail for his own film. Um but he also said something interesting that was Scorsese's uh, in the middle of re releasing a film at the time, The Irishman, you know, principally on Netflix, which is a completely new way uh, of films being released. Yeah, so, I was going to bring that up. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the cinema is different to how it used to be. It's one of those things, isn't it? 
Um, and at the same time, he sort of said maybe he has a point about kind of, you know, some Marvel films. Uh, he can't really comment on those other films, but he, he didn't feel those criticisms held true of Black Panther because he felt that Black Panther held up as a, a really good film, you know, in its own right. So, which kind of doesn't, I'm, I'm throwing that in there to start the conversation rather than end it. Because I think what it's saying was, you can't just dismiss Scorsese. He's made some of the greatest films of all time. Yeah? Yeah. Um, by the same token, there is a defense of Marvel in there to say, you know, there are some really good Marvel films out there. So um, it's not it's not an easy question to just say yes or no to. Um, but what should we do? Should we talk about where Martin Scorsese is coming from or what we think of Marvel? Which one of those should we take? Um, I think we'll do the, the Scorsese bit first. I would like to preface this with the fact that he didn't really want to talk about Marvel. He was asked a question about Marvel and he just gave his response. And people are forgetting that he's allowed to have an opinion and we're allowed to disagree with it. Um, but yeah. he, he, he didn't want to bring this up. Obviously, he was promoting the Irishman. He was like, oh, yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's cinema. It's a very strange way to say you don't like a certain film. Like, you know, I, I, you know I've not liked heaps of films and it's not, I've like gone two steps saying, oh, that's not cinema. And I think it's, it's a strange when, it's a strange way to look at it because if you look, should we go to the worst films on IMDb? You know, they've got the top 250 and then they've got the bottom 250. Okay. I think it's very strange to call Marvel not cinema. I think that's a weird way for him to say that he doesn't like those films. Because I feel like it's just a completely irrelevant discussion to be having. I don't know if just the, the current situation with everything going on. I just feel like there's bigger things to be worrying about. And, and you know, like in, in terms of cinema, you know, making sure people get fair pay. There's obviously that other story about Chadwick Boseman. Did you see that with Sienna Miller? Yeah. Where he donated his salary so she could get paid what she deserved. I feel like yeah. there's more things to worry about than saying it's not cinema. So I don't, I don't really know where he, where he's coming from with that that view. I don't understand why that's. Uh, you can say you don't like a t- certain type of film, but um, I mean, wh- where I think he might have been coming from on that is all right. Look, there is an element of Martin Scorsese is obviously genuinely an, an older director. He, you know, he made probably his first great film. You know, the year I was born, so quite a long time ago. Um, Which one's uh, that? Uh, taxi Drive, uh, not Taxi Drive, sorry, Mean Streets in 1972. So he's had like a 40-odd year film career. Um, I think it, it's not entirely surprising that someone who has been around that long looks at the way things are, you know, more than a generation later and, and, and feels like it's not the way things were when he was younger. Do you know what I mean? There's always going to be an element of that. It sounds like an old man saying, oh, back in my day, you know, we made films. So, like, like, you know, and look, and I think with the best will in the world, I think that's a little bit inevitable. And I'm probably guilty of, of a little bit of that myself. So I understand, you know, while I while I would say there's a bit of that, I, I still slightly sympathise, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, I think there's also an element of, he comes from a generation where he feels it should be all about the film and the story and, and um, the, the, the thing that, that they're trying to make. And it's, you know, the the financial side, the box office side is someone else's problem. I'm creative. I should be given the money and the freedom to make the best one I can make. And it should be someone else's problem whether to, um, uh, you know, make, you know, make that successful. Um, and obviously I think he's evolved a little bit over the years because I think he, part of the reason he worked with DiCaprio is he can get a great performance out of a great actor who he works well with, but also he's good box office and he helps get his film, films made. So even he has had to acknowledge that there's a certain way to make your films financially viable these days. 
Um, but also I think there's an element of, there's something distasteful in his eyes and his generation's eyes, I would say, about films where you're already thinking about the, the lunchbox and the action figures. Yeah. Before yeah. you finish writing the script. That's not, that's not necessarily just down to Marvel. Um, I, don't think, I, I, to be honest, I don't think that's a fair criticism. We live in a much more commercialised environment now where everything, like I, I work in retail, I work in a supermarket, and I was putting out fucking, um, I was putting out Christmas chocolates on like the, the 1st of September. Mm-hmm. We just live in a market where everything's, in a world where everything's pointed towards how we can make sales, not just from tickets, but yeah. from from everything, and yeah, fuck it. Why 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 would Marvel not try and you know sell a lunchbox with Thor on it or uh, you know a Black Panther outfit? I think I think it. I th- I, I, to be honest, the more we talk about it, the more pissed off I'm getting off. It's Scorsese for making such a throwaway comment. Because yeah, and yeah, yeah. And Sorry, carry on. Is I'm, I'm there, on the there, there is an element of this is that I think part of the reason Scorsese is as pissed off as he is is that he has. You know, he has won Oscars. He has made films which have won other people's Oscars. He has made films which has inspired a whole new generation of filmmakers and, and film fans. And yet he has always found it a massive struggle to get his films made. And I think part of him sits there and thinks, why why, should, why is it so hard? What do, what do I have to do to prove myself that I should get the money I want to make the film I want to make? And, and I think it's... Uh, I, I think it's a, an element of frustration with the film industry generally. And you're right, it didn't start with Marvel. I mean, what I would say about Marvel is that if, if you're going to have a mainstream and if you're going to have films that generate um, action figures, merchandise, and theme park rides, um, it could be a lot worse because some of those Marvel films are really good. I mean, they come for a play, uh, from a place, those Marvel comics, where people have taken great care to actually write compelling stories. Everything from the X-Men to Spider-Man and, and things like that. Have, have, that. These are stories with moral dilemmas and everything else. And, and you know, my, my attitude probably is if you're going to have a mainstream, it could be a lot worse than Marvel. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I just... Uh, my, but his, his concern is that, you know, it feels like it's all about that and that never, you know, and, and no one else gets a shot, which is weird when he's just kind of made one of the highest budget films he's ever made uh, with The Irishman, obviously. Yeah, but he insisted on doing that de-aging stuff with um, De Niro, and uh, it was, uh, which was freaky. So he was, he, it's uh, yeah, and that that comment that Chadwick Boseman made was it? No, did he make the comment about Netflix, or was that just? Yeah, he he, ba- he basically said that um, he's, he was. I think he was trying. He's just trying to be balanced, and he said, you know, bearing in mind, Scorsese has just released a film in a very new way, and it's not going to be in theaters, and. You know, the, the fact is things change and opportunities to do things in a new way. He, Scorsese got money and freedom in return for working with Netflix. And, and not everything that's new and not every new way of making a film and not every new wave of making a film is automatically bad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying very hard not to go on a very loud and, you know, sweary rant about Scorsese here because he's, he's just, yeah, he's pissed me off. He's really pissed me off with the whole oh, it's not cinema. Well, Netflix isn't cinema. Netflix is something you stick on when you come home from work or you're eating your tea. You, you've, you've released something exclusively to watch on a screen no bigger than, say, 45 inches. So you, you've... And you basically sold out. So you, well, you can you can move with the times and get money by watching something on... Uh, by making a film through Netflix. So you can move with the times, but the type of films people watch, they can't move with the times. You can only watch a specific type of film and call it cinema. That's a stupid view to have. Just say you don't like Marvel. That's fine. You're allowed to have taste. 
I didn't like Hugo. Hugo was fucking garbage, but I'm allowed to say that because I have taste. I'm not going to say Hugo wasn't cinema because you could see it in a cinema. By yeah. that definition, by that definition, The Irishman wasn't cinema because you couldn't go and see it in a cinema. It is an interesting point that says you know cinema is is, is changing in ways that make it almost unrecognisable. And to, I mean, I mean to put this in a little bit of context, um, there's been a number of times through the years when cinema has changed in, in quite fundamental ways. Um, you know, up, up until like the, the, the mid to late 40s, you had what's been called the studio system, where the biggest stars and the biggest directors were um, basically the employees of a studio exclusively. So if you were doing films with Paramount, you couldn't do a film with Universal, you couldn't do a film anywhere else, you did what you were told, yeah? And like the producers and executives were in complete control of what you did with your life, yeah? And, and that changed. The studio system broke up. And because big names like Hitchcock and Kubrick and people like that, they wanted the independence to make their films their way. Mm. And a lot of people who, who liked the studio system and were part of the studio system were frustrated at that change. Oh, it's, you know, it's, you know you've, you're going you're to lose a lot of, of good old, you know, uh, elements of, of the film industry by breaking this all apart. And who do these prima donnas think they are? There was a lot of that. And on the one hand, there were a lot of great films made during the studio system, you know, Casablanca, The Maltese Falcon, you know, some of Hitchcock's early films, right? And then, but also a lot of people would argue that as the you know, 50s progressed and the 60s, there was a lot of genuine new classic films. Lawrence of, of Arabia probably wouldn't have been made in the studio era. You know, Hitchcock's Vertigo and North by Northwest, you know, wouldn't have been made in the studio era because Hitchcock had to fight for, you know, creative control back then and he, he wasn't having that. Then television changed everything and 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 films went through a new crisis and they started throwing out things like 3D and CinemaScope to try and emphasize the difference between large screen and small screen. So there's been always changes. There's always been disruption. And Scorsese himself was one of the disruptors of the cinema industry in in the 70s because they they came a point where the studios were, they were struggling to connect with the audience. There was this perception that the guys in the boardroom making films were, you know, old white men who didn't really know what the, the, the masses wanted and people like Scorsese and Coppola and George Lucas and Spielberg came through and said, well, we know what films to make in this era, so stand back and watch us. And it became the era of the great filmmaker, the auteurs who were in control of everything. And and there were plenty of people who were unhappy that about that new wave. Yeah. And the thing is, that there's always change because before that decade was even over, you had Jaws and Star Wars and the blockbuster was born and you've got this whole new, it's a constantly moving flux. Home videos come along, the internet's come along, Netflix has come along. There's always a challenge, there's always a new issue and there's always people who are unhappy about the way things are going. And I probably think that where Scorsese was that I think he was happier when there were mainstream films making lots of money and then someone would give him some of that money to make whatever film he wanted to make. And there was that balance. There's always been that balance between like mainstream and independent. And he's obviously got this perception now that the studios who've got, got more and more corporate over the years, ever since like big holding companies start to buy up the studios, I, you know, there's this feeling now that you've got like Disney owns almost everything now. And there's this corporate stranglehold on creativity. I personally think, how do I put this? I personally think he's chosen the wrong target in Marvel, right? Because I think Marvel makes some really interesting films. Yeah. yeah, I was going to get into that because it, I'm still pissed off, but you carry on so I can calm down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I think the what I would say is I think Scorsese has a point about the the boardroom and the corporate like um, 
the corporate goals of making films has probably got too much of the power at the moment. And there is an imbalance between the people who just want to put out lots and lots of um, pre-packaged product that's the same as, you know, that came out last year and the creative people want to do something new. I think there is an imbalance there. I think there is this giant corporate media stranglehold. Um, but I would, I would argue that Marvel is not the, Marvel is not the problem, right? Yeah. See, I, the problem I have with him seemingly, because he finishes his, his uh, article saying, for anyone who dreams of making movies or who's just starting out, the situation at this moment is brutal and inhospitable to art. And the actor simply writing those words fills me with terrible sadness. It's like, well, that's not fucking Marvel's fault. Marvel make, make Marvel make a specific type of films. They've basically looked at the, the works of um, Stan Lee and what's the name of it? Something Kirby. Uh, yeah, Jack Kirby. Yeah. Uh, Avi Adams, the other one, yeah. All these people, he's looked at the works and gone, you know what, we're going to make films about this because they tell interesting stories about interesting characters. And for him to sit there and say that's not cinema, I mean, okay, so before Black Panther, who's the only black superhero? You can't even, you can't even think of one. You can't even think of one. I can't think of one. You, you look at Black Panther and what a, a phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon that film was. I watched it again yeah. recently. It's an excellent film. And it's not just a, it's not like they've just taken a Marvel formula where it's like, this is a superhero. This is the big bad. He's got to go and defeat it. Blah, blah. There's so many layers to that. And so my one of my favorite lines out of any film ever, not just Marvel, is the bit at the end. Spoiler: When have you seen Black Panther? Yeah, yeah, mate. So when Crap. Eric, when Eric Killmonger's, he's basically he's been defeated by Black Panther, and he's talking to T'Challa, and T'Challa's like, "Look, we can save you." And he's like, "What? And live my life um, as a like as a prisoner? Just uh, you know, th- like I throw me into the water like my ancestors who knew it was better to die than live a life of bondage. That's yeah. in a Marvel film, and you're telling me it's not fucking cinema? Fuck you, Martin Scorsese, you dickhead. Sorry, I think it's ridiculous yeah. for him to go after Marvel to go after Marvel when I'm looking at the lowest rated um, lowest rated movies on uh, IMDb. You have got Super Babies, Baby Geniuses Two, Birdemic, Shock and Terror, Battlefield Earth, mm. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Nin- three ninjas high noon at Mega Mountain. Like, why are we get yeah, the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl 3D? It's like, that's are we talking about taste or are we talking about what cinema is and what cinema? Because it sounds like cinema is just being part of Scorsese's exclusive club of that type of film, you know. What I mean, not the big blockbuster, but you know, stories about you know, real life people like you know, Jake LaMotta and things like that, and Howard Hughes and Jordan Belfort, and you know, p- people like that. Is that the only story we can tell? Because you no, know, cinema is such a, a broad scope that you can when you look at when you look at what's coming into the cinema it's like oh well i like christopher nolan films uh, i want to go see that i wanted to go see tenet it's like but i also like marvel films I think, i'm pretty sure i've seen every marvel film except the eric banner hulk and the edward norton hulk i've mm. seen every marvel film i like seeing that i like going seeing like you know it's like i've been to see um tarantino i've, I've been to see um scorsese at the cinema i've seen different films at the cinema and cinema is it's like it's like a big umbrella of different types of films. And it's like, you want to go and see a comedy. Oh no, I want to go see an action. You want to go, you're, you're taking the missus to go and see a rom-com. And just saying, oh, because I didn't like a film or I don't, they're not for me. They're more like theme parks than movies. I don't think they're cinema. It's like, well, that no bullshit. They are. They're made to be seen on a cinema screen. It's just because you didn't like it is, isn't a yeah. reason to say it's not cinema. I, I really don't understand where the guy's coming from at all. Yeah, and, and I think it's a case he's he's misdirected his his aim, in my humble opinion. But what's he because, what's he annoyed at? What's he annoyed at? The fact that he can't get he doesn't get funding for his films. So, so it, it, 
I'm sorry, but sorry, but Scorsese doesn't make those films. Marvel films cost three hundred million because it's a lot of it is computer generated. The films he made, did he need? Did he need one hundred and fifty million to make Wolf of Wall Street? He only needed a lot of money to make The Irishman because he wanted to de-age all of his favorite actors into one film. He could have picked people that weren't that age. He could have picked other actors and actresses, but he wanted to de-age his favorite actors. And Robert De Niro isn't looking fifty anymore. He looks about seventy-five. I don't. I just. I don't know why. Why are you so bitter? Times change, and there's things like cinema. Everything changes. Do are footballers bitter that? Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi get better, you know, training and better facilities to use than Pele and Garincha and all these people. No, times change. You can't be bitter about it because things have changed. I don't. I, I don't. I, maybe you can explain to me. But I don't understand what he's bitter about. So I, th- I, th- I think his bitterness stems from the fact that he he has struggled to get his film made, and here's why I think he's misdirected his his frustration. But I think his frustration is real. Just if you see what I mean, right? Yeah. Marvel films cost a lot of money, yeah? But they make a lot of money. And there is nothing stopping Disney Studios taking some of the substantial profits that Marvel makes, building it into the um, the, the conditions of the contracts that they make for the big blockbuster films, the way David Putnam did with Columbia back in the 80s, and say, we are going to use some of the profits that we're making from these films to support new films, new artists, new ideas, independent stuff. We're making money from these things. Let's give some of that back. For the same reason that you could say it's nobody's fault that there's more, much, much more money in the Premier League these days and there's you know, more facilities and payment for players, but there's nothing stopping the, the structure of that league being a bit more financially supportive of the lower leagues. Do you see what I mean? It's not Marvel's fault, but in the boardroom, one might argue that they could take the profits of those films and give more opportunities to a more diverse range of filmmakers. Yeah, but that doesn't... They, they do. Like, they, they gave, you know... Black Panther's director was Ryan Coogler, who's, like, he's like what, 34, 35? Yeah. I mean, when's the last time you heard of a 30... Well, when did um, Black Panther come out? When's the last time you heard of a 32-year-old um, black director directing a film that made over a billion dollars? He was 30... Probably 31 or 32 when he was directing Black Panther. When, yeah. when did you hear about that? It's... And, and again, we put this into context, right? Scorsese's route into making films was a relatively new route into making films. He, he's regarded as a film school director. Off the top of my head, I, I don't know if he actually went to film school, um, but he's from that generous di- director who became very cine literate, yeah? yeah? And then he made a couple of films, or at least one film for Roger Corman. Have, have you heard of Roger Corman? I haven't, but continue. So Roger Corman is regarded as the king of the B-movie. So when the studio system kind of broke up, um, the idea that you could make a small film and a big film and the small film would be on the be on the bill with the big film. So yeah. new directors got an opportunity to make a film because their short film was on before, you know, the, the big Humphrey Bogart or James Cagney film. Yeah. That broke up, but there was still a, an appetite for smaller films, independent films, drive-in movies. And Roger Corman was the king of that. And he would give young directors... Ron Howard is another one. Lots of, uh, lots of like new directors of that generation came up through Roger Corman. He said, look, here is this much money, yeah? And as long as the film's got a car chase, a pretty girl, and a shootout, you can make whatever film you make within that. And the B-movie was an opportunity for young, interesting directors to show they could do something, learn how to make a film, and then go and do something bigger. And right. then in the 70s, when the studio system opened out, they were looking for like new auteurs. Scorsese was able to capitalize on that because he was the young, interesting director whose time had come. And I think part of the problem for Scorsese is that he's not that guy anymore. And Ryan Coogler is, you know, that maybe um, Greta Gerwig is because she's, 
you know, made a couple of independent films and then decided that Little Women is the way for her to open up her, her appeal a little bit. It, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about um, Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry is, you know, I don't, I still don't know quite Terrible. how he's yeah, I, I still don't know quite how he's done it because he seems to have done like these films about like a, a pantomime dame and these kind of like straight to straight to cable TV, you know, uh, uh, morality plays. But he's gone and made himself a t- ton of money and now he owns a film studio. And there are different ways now to pay your dues. And Ryan Coogler has gone and you know made a couple of interesting films, including with uh, Michael B. Jordan. And then he got the chance to do Black Panther. And now he's, you know, pe- people play the system so that they can, um, you know, be successful and, 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 and get the opportunities they want to get. And like you say, it's changed. And Scorsese, I think he just feels a little bit like a man out of time. I can understand being bitter, but I, just, I don't understand. You just got to kind of let that shit go. Like, you know, it's, you know, you've had, you've had your time. Okay, it was harder for you to make films, but lots of things were harder to do in the 70s. That, 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 and it, not just like for cinema. I mean, he, he just seems a bit, not, it's not, I don't know how it feels to you, but you know, how do you think people like Greta Gerwig and um, Anna Anna Duvernay feel like when they've they've tried to make films? You know, direct like female directors have had a lot more issues trying to make big films and getting the recognition they deserve than Martin Scorsese. I know he's had his things with the Oscars, but he's not winning that recognition. But films are harder to make. Okay, if you need to get into the into the industry a certain way, like you know, see there's similar things with YouTube. You know, the way you get big on YouTube is like there's obviously you create like a fake drama and therefore you become popular, you get subscribers. So if you have to make a B movie, B movie to get into the film industry, then, you know, so be it. You know, people get their lucky break with in a heaps of different ways, whether it's, you know, like, you know, the cast of Skins and how many of them have been in, you know, massive films? You know, got Nicholas Holt, Jack O'Connell, Dev Patel, you know, people like that. I don't understand why, if he's just being bitter, he's just being bitter, but I'd expect better of Martin Scorsese. I, I just don't think it's like a, I don't think it's a way you conduct yourself. Like, oh, I don't think this is cinema. It's not for me. It's like, well, I don't, I didn't think Hugo was cinema because it was garbage. Like, it's just, it's just, you know, it's petulant. And that's what I expect more from a director, like you said, who is very cineliterate and has made some, like, other than Hugo, he's not really got many blemishes on his film career, personally, because I thought Hugo was shit. Um, but that, again, that's taste. You, you like Hugo. You thought Hugo was all right. Yeah, I thought it was all right. I, I wouldn't put it, it up there with his best films. I thought it was shit. But I loved Wolf of Wall Street. I loved. Um, strangely, Gangs of New York is my favorite Scorsese film, and it's not. I, I know it's not even his best. It's just my favorite because um, yeah. it's probably Raging Bull or you know Taxi Driver. But the, you know, it's a it's a case of taste. That's what's pissed me off. It's like, oh, I don't think this is cinema. It's like I get it's your opinion, Scorsese, but it just sounds like you're coming out and being bitter. You can't have that opinion when you're releasing a film exclusively on Netflix. It's stupid. It's like Christopher Nolan said the same. Like Christopher Nolan is so adamant that you don't convert to digital. And you, does he, he's one that uses is it seventy millimeter. Or does he convert? No, it's Tarantino that uses seventy millimeter. Yeah, no, no, Nolan, Nolan, and Tarantino. See, this is is an interesting thing. It's just thanks to Nolan and Tarantino, there are still films being made on celluloid, and it would be a shame if celluloid was wiped out altogether. On the other hand, it's very easy for people who can command that kind of respect and money in the in the film industry, like Tarantino and Nolan, to insist on. Um, filming on celluloid because if someone's trying to make an independent film, digital opens up so many more opportunities. I mean, I don't think it's ever going to completely catch on, but people have made films that have ended up being shown in the, uh, you know, the festival circuit and the independent circuit that have been basically filmed on an iPhone, like an, with with, it, with with attachments and software on it. 
and that's made possible by digital. And I think it it's opened out a lot more opportunities on digital. So the, the fact is, I don't think you can take a, a ask a seventy five year old guy to to identify the problem and the solution in in the twenty first century about what needs to happen next. I think he's I think he's called out a frustration and he's he's totally misdirected it. I think there is a case to answer that says Disney and some of the big studios could probably look at trying to make the world of cinema a bit more interesting, yeah. providing more support for that. So I agree with that. The Disney are literally buying everyone. They've bought Marvel, they've bought Star Wars, they've bought Fox. And that's where it just, it's, 